Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Well, I've entitled the message this morning, Stop Planning Without God. You already know it comes from James' wonderful practical epistle, uh, uh, the epistle that bears his name. James is, uh, of course, the half-brother of Jesus, being the natural offspring of uh, Mary and Joseph, Jesus being born only of uh, Mary. And I would believe, uh, though the text doesn't tell us, that James is probably uh, next in the birth order for Mary. Uh, and so he was Jesus' kid brother, if you, if you will. Maybe you had a kid brother. I had uh, an older brother, and I had uh, two younger brothers, so I can uh, easily close my mind and uh, my, my eyes and remember those days. And such was James. He uh, was not saved till after the resurrection. We see that in 1 Corinthians 15. And yet when he was saved, God used him greatly. He became the pastor of the first church, of the first, uh, uh, of, of the first city, if you will, the city of Jerusalem. And there uh, we know through the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, he led that early church in hammering out the theology what happens to this group of uh, believers known as the church? Are they somehow supposed to become Jewish? And how do we do that? And how do we ascertain that? What about the Gentiles? How do we incorporate that? And James is seen as the great leader. We see it even in Galatians, where uh, in other places where Paul returns and he, uh, he brings a report of his missionary journeys to Pastor James. And James writes this very practical epistle. It's, uh, some call it street-level Christianity. It's not high-minded. It's not like Paul's uh, writings where you, you read it and you go like, what was that? And you've got to read it three and four and ten times to unweave uh, the things that God's Spirit through Paul's pen wove together. Thinking of Romans and some of the argument and presentation there. James isn't like that at all. It's a plain speak for plain folks. There are 108 verses, but in it there are like 56 some imperatives. It's like every other verse has a command. Uh, he's out there shepherding the flock. These uh, Jews uh, who are now scattered all over the uh, Roman Empire due to persecution. And he writes to them, and this is probably, if it's not this, it's John Mark's gospel. I think James is perhaps the oldest, the first of the New Testament books. And in chapter 4, when he comes uh, to this section, he's dealing with worldliness. He uh, is going to caution those who have named the name of Christ that were part of his church that are now scattered. Listen, you can be very worldly in your mindset and in your behavior. And in two ways you can do this. In the opening verses, he, he talks to them about their fighting and their striving with one another. 
desiring to have and, uh, and to consume it upon their own lust. He says in verse 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred to, toward God? And he begins to uh, unfold that first way in which uh, God's people can be very worldly in their striving. But he doesn't leave the theme of worldliness there. He goes on in the section that we read earlier and he presents another way in which you and I as believers in Christ, that is if you name the name of Christ, can, uh, can be very worldly in our orientation and in our practice. And that's what we're going to look at here this morning as we look at verses 13 to the end of the chapter. And in essence, James tells his, believer, his uh, fellow Christians, as a good pastor would, and, and by 20 centuries later through the Spirit in his writing, tells us, listen, stop planning without God. For us to do so is the height of worldliness. It reveals a wrong way of thinking. So in essence, he's calling us, come to your senses and think rightly. Even about this new year, this year 2009. And it's timely for us. It's common for us, I say in the introduction, to begin a new year by writing goals and plans to be accomplished in the new year. Uh, They tell us that some of the most common goals involve uh, weight loss. Would you believe that? Mine, uh, it seems to appear every year. For a lot of years, it didn't seem to make a whole lot of difference. Uh, You start visiting the doctor and they say, you got a blood pressure problem, this and that. If you need a little more motivation, it gives you a little bit more. Eating is pleasurable, and I certainly enjoy that, don't we? Amen. Amen. Whoa, there we go. That's the best one we've had all year. <laughs> I mean, it could have been a pill a day. There's some people that pop pills and you think that's, you know, Shackley products and all that, that Faithy's family, you think that's all they, you know, God could have said take a pill a day. It's a one a day and that's all you need, but uh, you can eat. Exercise is another thing, doesn't it? It, uh, it finds its way into our our, our goals for the new year. Boy, i got to change that. Doctor says I ought to do it. I know I ought to do it. There's the treadmill over there. How come it's still brand new? It's still brand new. There it is. And, and all sorts of things we, uh, we think about in, in a new year and writing of goals. And I, I say to you, it's a good thing. It's a good thing to write goals. You know, our lives are to be productive and and having goals is uh, for an archer like having a target. Now think about that, Mark. You've got that uh, deer in your backyard, and, and you practice your archery there, right? Now, do you stand out on the curb and shoot that with that? Do you go that far away? That must be a sight to the people, your neighbors, to see out with a bow and arrow shooting. That'd be like 50 yards, right, to that? No kidding. Well, without a target, you see, you don't know if you ever hit anything. And goals are like that, like an archer's target. They help us to to accomplish more, to see where we are, and, and to make changes, and to be productive. I say to you, there's nothing wrong with planning. Nothing at all. In fact, uh, when you and I plan, we reflect the Lord. You know, and we, we are image bearers of God. And, and when we plan, 
I say to you, we are being like the Lord, who has a plan that includes all things. Planning is not wrong. Planning is wise. It's good to plan. It's good to have a plan. Well, the problem is, is that when we do our planning and leave God out of the picture, little thinking of our true condition, little thinking of the uncertainty of life, the curveballs that come, we sit down and then write our plans as if you and I were the masters of our fate. As if uh, we could plan it out, if we had the power and the ability to control all circumstances to bring about the ends. And to do it with little thought or no thought of God or to ask his help. That's what James is going to tell us is, uh, is evil. It's worldly. And it ought not to be a part of our thinking in the year 2009. Pastor James writes to a scattered church directing them and us to stop such a practice. For such a practice reveals a wrong way of thinking. Stop it. Remember, you cannot predict the future with absolute certainty. You cannot do it. And some of these in James's flock were planning as if they could and as if they would be here forever. There are in these few verses, verses 13 to, through 17, three insights helping you and helping me to have the proper perspective of life. And that is this, that you and I are totally and utterly dependent upon God for all things. And just begin with the right perspective. Just back up a second. This always helps me. Think about our precarious condition. You and I stand on a, a, a globe called the earth. The inside is molten. It's liquid. Did you know that? The outside, the crust is hardened. We stand on this thing. and We're blasting through outer space at incredible speeds. It's a hostile environment out there. Remember the cosmonaut that said, I've been out there and I've not found God? Remember that? All he had to do was step outside, and he would have met him instantly. It's hostile out there. And we are blasting at incredible speeds, and this planet is hung on nothing. I mean, there's not a foundation. We sing, how firm a foundation. There's no physical foundation to the earth. We're on the satellite earth, and here we are, blanketed with an ever-so-thin atmosphere. Thank the Lord for that in this geosphere, the only place like it that we have ever found in all the universe, and man in his rebellion, who hates God because he loves sin, says, I don't see God anywhere, and we really have no reason for being here, and certainly if we are here, it's, this thing has, has to have happened somewhere else, and, and hunts and hunts and hunts like a madman, but cannot find it. It is the earth that God has made inhabitable, and he's put inhabitants on the earth to his glory. That's our predicament. That's where you and I live. That's what we stand upon. Wow. Think about that. Wow. And that's right. We are totally and utterly dependent on the Lord for life, protection, sustenance, and our future.
Well, three insights. The first insight is found in verse 13. For many of us as Christians, it shouldn't be, but God is simply not part of our planning. That's what James is talking about in verse 13 when he invites his church, men and women in his flock scattered to, now listen, draw near, listen what I say. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we'll... We will go to this or that city, and here's the plan. We'll spend a year there. We'll carry on business. The Greek word we get emporium from. Sometimes you'll hear that, emporium. The Greek word for business or commerce. We'll carry on business and we'll make a profit is the Greek word. We'll make money. Boy, that speaks to most Americans' ears, doesn't it? While James is attempting to expose and eliminate this form of worldliness, or just living with the illusion of being independent of God, and, and A, James imagines in this verse a gathering of Christian businessmen and women making their plans with no thought of God at all. They're huddled in that uh, conference room around that table with uh, the audiovisual uh, projection system uh, All of uh, the high-tech stuff as they plan their coming business adventure. That's what they're doing. Every step of their plan is detailed with absolute assurance. We're going to go there, Chicago, then Detroit, Miami, L.A., Salt Lake, Dallas. We're going to spend this length of time there and as if the results is already easily predictable, we're going to make this much money. That's the idea. It's filled with presumption. It's filled with pride. It's a willful denial of their real life circumstance and predicament. And these are not godless, unsaved people that James is writing to. He's writing to people like us, men and women who name the name of Christ live in a world that's no friend of grace and have been caught up and swallowed up in this idea that uh, somehow we're total independent agents and our fate is in our own hands, our own ingenuity, our own power. I see it everywhere I look. I hear about it. You hear about it in school. You read about it in the text. You see it in the media. It is. It's unbiblical and it's worldly, is what James is telling us. There is no thought, no thought is entertained as to God's will for them. Today or tomorrow are soon to be in their complete control and power. They exude with a self-assertedness. They exude with a self-centeredness. They exude with a self-confidence that's diluted. Diluted. It is assumed that the journey is safe, is certain to be safe, and that the business will be profitable. They assume that the year is completely at their disposal, and that the year is even beyond. We're just going to do this and going to do that. Well, we, like them, often forget, and here's the point, that our plans are always and only ever tentative. That's it. They're tentative. 
tentative. Tentative. They're never forget. Your plans are not your own. Your time is not your own. And your life is not your own. It's not. Now James is not condemning planning. Let me say it again. Just planning that leaves God out of the picture. One man writes, So pervasive is our culture's arrogant independence of God that even most Christians attend church, marry, choose their vocations, have children, buy and sell homes, expand their portfolios, and numbly ride the currents of culture without substantial reference to the will of God. More Christians never seriously pray about God's will regarding their vocation, family direction, entertainment, etc. And he's right. It's worldly, James is saying. It's worldly to do that. Stop doing it. Begin 2009 when you think about where do I want to go if God should so allow and, and enter that into the foundation and rock of your thinking. For my life is tentative and all that I have, my plans, my resources, my power are all in his hands. For I'm totally and utterly dependent upon him. Plan. Yes, of course. It's a fool not to plan. But plan rightly. Remember, God is the big player in it, and you are, and I am not. Now it, also, it sounds, doesn't like, like the story Jesus told in Luke? Look at that. Keep your finger on James. We're going to come back. But look, at the, look at that story. I remind you, you, you know this story in, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 12. Jesus tells the story of the, uh, the wealthy man, the rich fool who made plans, but he forgot the nature of life. Remember that? Planning uh, that included God was, it doesn't appear to be whatsoever as a part of his life. In uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter uh, 12, look at verse 16. And he, that's Jesus, told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. That's his plan, you see. And there I'll store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. He assumed it was within his power, see. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. And here's God's... uh, commentary on the whole thing. Jesus tells us, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. It sounds, shame sounds an awful lot like his brother's parable, his half-brother, the Lord Jesus. Does it not? It's a reminder for us 
to be rebuked when we plan, and God is not a part of the process. But there's a second insight that James goes on in verse 14, and it's this, the solution for this is to remember how small and weak and frail you really are, and I am. We get a little bit of sickness and we're bedridden. Ailness. We breathe something. Something happens. Uh, This or that, a report, an accident. And there it goes. We may have thought something wholly different. Well, I I thought it would have been this. Or I thought I would have... It doesn't happen always. It doesn't. Don't forget who you are. You're weak and you're frail. And you're small totally and utterly dependent on the Lord for everything. Look what he says in verse 14 again. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. That's how puny you are. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a while, then vanishes. James tells us that uh, we are so deficit that we do not even know what will happen tomorrow. Our knowledge is so limited. In other words, he means by this, don't forget that you are human and nothing more. You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. Well, of course we don't. We can plan. We can hope. We can have an idea. But it's tentative. Always tentative at best. Always. Always. There was a great... uh, a great uh, hero of a pilot this week, and you all saw it with U.S. Air, used the Hudson River as a landing strip in what would have been a complete disaster. People headed from New York, LaGuardia, headed down to Charlotte on probably a routine flight. They took off from LaGuardia. It might have been a flight they had taken a hundred times. Look at that. You've been on that flight, Raj? And look at that. They planned their day timers. They set their course. They had this. They had that. And lo and behold, the early report, some birds. Birds? You mean birds messed up the thing? Birds. I didn't see that coming. God in His grace spared the lives of all of them. An amazing story. A good report for U.S. Air, Raj. Good job. Birds. (coughs) Stick that into your date timer without God. Unless you're a Larry Bird or something. Birds. We're so deficient, we don't know what's going to happen the next few moments. I went into the dollar store with Faith yesterday. That's a good store, especially in a down economy. A lot of people in there. <laughs> I like that place. I get certain things there. And I walked in. There was a, man, I heard this smash in the parking lot. There were bumper cars going on. Nice car. got run into by one that was less nice. Well, I didn't plan that. I wasn't in his daily plan. It messed up his day. She was screaming, the lady. I stood there in case they needed a witness. I saw the whole thing. They didn't plan that. Stuff happens. Never forget the solution 
is never forget that we're human and nothing more, and our knowledge is so contained, we don't know what's going to happen the next moment. Be careful. Plan, but it's always tentative. And always have God as the foundation and bedrock of your thinking. That's what James is saying. And not to do so is worldly. Equally serious, and B, is our failure to take to heart the frailty and the shortness of our life. We looked at that a few, I think a month or two ago when we looked at the psalm dealing with that. But he asked the question, what is your life? Now this is not a university setting where they're dealing with philosophy. He's not, not, he's not worried about the high-minded, lofty thoughts of, of such a discussion. No, not Pastor James in the street-level talk. He's talking to real people on the street. He's saying, uh, listen, consider and think about the sort of life we have. What is the sort of life we have? And we might answer him, well, it's transitory, we're just moving through pretty quickly, right? It's precarious. It's not totally controllable or predictable. Man, that's life. It's so brief. It tells us then it's a vapor. It's an atmos. It's here, then it's gone. Going, going, and almost gone. Psalm 90. So don't assume that you're that uh, don't assume that you're secure forever, like the rich man in Luke's Gospel, chapter twelve. Someone said only death and taxes are certain. Is that right, Greg? No, it's not true. I, I hear a lot of folks don't even pay taxes. Somebody said the new Secretary of the Treasurer even missed. I, he must have forgot April fifteenth or something. I don't know. Death is the only thing, unless the Lord should come, that is certain. Don't assume that you're secure forever. Don't forget who you are, he's saying. You're small, you're frail. Life is precarious, it's uncertain, and it's unpredictable. Curveballs is the way I like to put it. Only death is certain. A number of things but to illustrate this in my own life as I thought about this. I had an almost Uncle Wally, and uh, I thought he was going to marry my mother's sister. And we call him Uncle Wally. He uh, was a dentist, and uh, I bear his marks today, some fillings he put into my, my uh, teeth. I, in fact, I call him Uncle Wally. He was part of the family, though she threw the engagement ring back at him, I don't, or out the window. She actually threw it out the window. <laughs> in a moving car. How'd you like to be married to her? <laughs> Uncle Wally had his own practice and was doing well in the city of Tonawanda. And he was 36. And the doctor said to Walter, you have arthritis. And you have a certain type that you're not even going to be able to hardly move your fingers in a very short time. He'd given himself years to training, started his practice. Maybe he only spent, Mark, I don't think 10 years. The latter days, he had someone in there. He was kind of telling her what to do, this or that, under his license, and finally sold the practice. Before he was 40, he was done. 
Life is unpredictable. It's uncertain. And if he's still alive today, he's an old man. Maybe he's soured by it. I don't know. December of uh, 1983, my father had an annual physical. He did that often. Doctor said to him, Eddie, you're so healthy, you're going to live forever. Forever ends the encouragement from doctors. Three weeks later, he died of a massive heart attack. It was early December. You're going to live forever. Gone, December the 24th. I say to you, life is uncertain. It's unpredictable. Don't forget who you are. There's a man in Indiana I had the joy of discipling, Charles Ireland. He was an attorney, young guy who had had come to know Christ, he and his uh, beautiful wife, Janet. They had one son, Benjamin. And Charlie, uh, every Tuesday night, was in our home. He and a small group of uh, folks. I had the privilege of discipling him for about a couple years. And during that time, got to know him very, very well. And uh, there was an occasion of law that came up. There was a kind of a freaky thing where this woman was married to an older man, much older man, and they lived out in the country of Wabash County, and he kind of kept her caged up there. Kind of strange. You wouldn't think it would even happen in a day like we live in. Wouldn't let her out, didn't give her a car. She had several children. The years passed. She finally got away, as the story is told. She went back to Warsaw, Indiana, to stay with her mother, took her babies with her. One was maybe four or five. And uh, he found her. Went up to Warsaw and uh, drug her out of the house and shot her dead in the front lawn. Little Warsaw, Indiana. While she was dying, her mother, her little baby girl, jumped on her and said, Mommy, Mommy, don't die. Can you imagine that? That conjures up unbelievable horror. But he wasn't done. He jumped in his car and he drove down to our city, North Manchester, Indiana, went right into Charlie's office, right past the receptionist, and shot Charlie dead right in his office. Charlie was uh, 37 years old, the prime of life, just getting to roll, never able to raise his son Benjamin. And and his wife, uh, last time Faithy and I went by to see her, to hug her and hold her and to encourage her, her eyes were still filled with tears, the loss of her life. I say to you that life is uncertain. It's brief. It's unpredictable. We live in a fallen world. Evil happens at times. It does. It does. And then the last story I recount to you, and you could come up with all sorts of them yourself. If you live very many years, you can. In our city, there was uh, the city I grew up in, North Tonawanda, there was a surgeon down about seven houses from my mom and dad's place. Dr. Carlson, great surgeon. He had uh, helped men, many, many people through the years. And he had uh, fathered several children. His one son was, uh, took after him in the medical field. 
he was uh, younger than I was. And uh, he went to medical school. He, as his dad, went on to become a surgeon. He took up residency. He had met a woman in Virginia. They married. They had a family and uh, had his practice outside of Washington, D.C. And they were up visiting over the holidays just a couple of years ago. Dr. Carlson the Younger, uh, probably 42 at this stage, he and his wife and his children. His wife had just had a baby not too long ago. Maybe, maybe was four, five, six months old. And while they were there for Thanksgiving, uh, she was out running errands in a FedEx truck. And we're most of the time happy to see packages, aren't we? A FedEx truck ran into her and harmed her such that she went into a coma and she died two days later. My mother and others paraded that house with all sorts of food as that young doctor and his four children and one being a baby who was still being nursed were trying to figure out how life would go on. My mother gave a P.S. to that story. She said the family sued FedEx and uh, a jury found uh, not guilty, the driver of that FedEx truck, because it was over his lunch hour. He was driving somewhere for a Big Mac or something, and FedEx said because it was on his lunch break, they, the company, were not culpable for the involuntary manslaughter, and they received nothing by way of a lawsuit. I'm saying to you that that's life. It's the reality. If you're a lover of newspapers like I am, I read God's Word daily to see what God has done and what the future holds, but like the great Ironside, I read the newspaper to find out what he's doing today. If you read it with your eyes open, there's uh, tears on every single page. Life is uncertain, it's brief, it's unpredictable. I'm saying to you, in the year 2009, make your plans, yes, but don't be worldly. At the very heart of your life and thought ought to be the Lord and His plan and His purpose. You are not independent players, nor am I in this thing called life. All of us are totally in sea, totally and utterly dependent on the Lord Jesus, for all of life, for life and its gifts are all from Him. And so for us to plan, leaving God out of our thoughts and plans is truly a form of sinful pride. But he doesn't stop. He goes on and he closes this paragraph with a third insight. Verses 15 to 17, he tells us we must replace this prideful behavior by daily acknowledging our utter dependence on the Lord. Let's reread again verse 15 and following. Instead, in other words, replace that with this. You ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. And anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, well, he sins. We must replace this prideful behavior in 2009 by every single day acknowledging 
our utter dependence upon the Lord. James tells us that Christian men and women ought to be saying, notice this, in their hearts and sometimes on their lips, if the Lord wills. Verse 15, such words acknowledge God's direction and His approval. For both our very lives and what we are able to do with them depend upon God's will, ultimately and finally. By doing this, we as planners express a desire for God's direction in our day-to-day life and approval. And here it is. And without that, we would do nothing. We would do nothing without God's approval and direction. One, one man writes the phrase, the Lord will, has been immensely popular at different times in church history. If the Lord wills. The Puritans loved the expression and they filled their speech and their writing. All of their correspondence is filled with a Latin equivalent. Dio volente. Dio volente. Latin for if the Lord wills. God willing. The old Methodists followed the same practice. And in fact, godly Methodists regularly signed their letters with the initials D period, V period. Dio Valenti, we will do this or we'll do that, God willing. Dio Valenti is to be the constant refrain of our hearts, the author goes on to say. As you and I conduct the affairs of our lives, if God wills must be written over a student's plans, the choice of a life partner, our future education, everyday activities. Older people need to say from the heart, if God wills, I will spend my time. If God wills, my children will become. If God wills, I will take up this ministry or do that. If God wills, I will wake up tomorrow. All of us should have this heart attitude. D period V, Dio volenti, God willing, before and after everything in life, presupposes a life of dependent prayer in which God is taken, which all is taken before God. I think he's right. I know that that's what James is telling us here. It ought to be the same with us. Old Charles Erdman, the commentator, writes on this, not that the Lord willing should always be on our lips as a mere formalism or chant. Sometimes we do that. You know, let me insert at this point. The Lord willing. It used to be a day when it was more popular. You'll hear older folks saying it more. Lord willing, I'll see you tomorrow. Lord willing at the coffee shop. Lord willing at the basketball court. Lord willing, Lord willing. We would say that. And I don't know that it was bad. There's a tendency when we repeat, of uh, it becomes mindless. It becomes a sort of chanting. And that uh, we fall off the other side and it means nothing then, right? I often wonder that sometimes when we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. We end our prayers. And sometimes I wonder, is it ritualistic when we say, in Jesus' name? 
Amen. I mean, are we really thinking what that means? It's not a chant. It's not a ritual. It just realizes afresh that the only way we have access into the Father's throne is through the blood of Christ and all that he accomplished. And that's what that means. It's not simply a, a Hail Mary or something, a sort of chanting, and therefore it makes my prayer acceptable. And the Lord willing in that expression can be just that. And so Erdman's right. It should be on our lips, not as a mere formalism or chant, but the truth of God's providence, the belief that life and its blessings are his gifts, the reverent conviction that the future is wholly within his power, should mold all of our thinking so that self-confidence and presumption would be impossible. It's in his hands, not our hands. And that's the point, the Dio Valenti. God willing. Well, the Apostle Paul illustrates this for us in many places, and I just, on your sheet, give you two examples. In Acts 18.21, he actually says, I'm going to come back and visit you if God wills. There it is. He actually says, Dio Valenti, God willing. But uh, just so you know that it's not always on the lips, but it's in his thought, he, he doesn't use the phrase in Acts 19.21. Uh, he just says, this, he says what his plans are. But it's in bedrock always in his thinking. You see that all the way through. If we continue to plan leaving God out of the picture, James tells us as he closes this in verse 16 and 17, we're guilty as believers of practicing worldliness, which is evil. It's a self-glorying type of boasting. It's a thinking of ourselves more than what we ought to. It's boasting, it's bragging, and it's evil. And we know that Paul tells us we're only ever, if we boast, we're to boast in the Lord, not in our prowess, our strength, our brains, our position in life. In fact, it's the same word that John, the apostle, uses in 1 John 2.16, called the pride of life. That's what it is. And it ought not to be named among us. He concludes verse 17 by saying, you have been warned. That's, what, that's the sense of it here. Anyone, meaning us, you, us, now 20 centuries later, you know what the good here is. In your heart always, and often on your lips, you ought to express if the Lord wills, we'll do this, do that. If we see 2009 all the way to December 31st. For it's in his hands, not ours. If the Lord wills. If we'll do that, we'll do the good thing. Well, what are some lessons for our life? Four, uh, four lessons. Number one, it's good, and it's even God-like to plan. Don't, don't uh, get the wrong message here. Say, well, there you go. I don't need that day timer. I'll throw that PDA out. I don't need the plan. Pastor said I don't need a schedule. Don't need to accomplish. No. I hope 2009 is the greatest year you ever lived. It's a privilege to be alive. and to, It's a precious gift, really. And the opportunities God gives us. We ought to have a plan. You ought to have right three or four or five measurable goals that... If God willing, you'd like to accomplish this year. 
personally, professionally, in your ministry, and all of us are ministers, not just the pastor, what do you want to accomplish? I'd like to see every one of us win one in the year 2009, that we'd go a-fishing, and that God would use us to see folks come to Christ and add it to his church. You know, that's a measurable goal. You get to the end, say, did I fish at all? Did I pray at all? Did I look for opportunity at all? Okay, that's a measurable goal, and one that uh, we ought to be engaging in. Have I spent time helping? Have I been a disciple? Have I discipled others? And serving, these are areas of spiritual growth and ministry. Personal, family, professional, educational. Good to have goals. Don't, don't hear me wrong, but if you plan without God, that's what James is saying. That's evil. I think you got that. If the Lord wills, we'll do this, or we'll do that. And that ought to be our mindset as a church, in church leadership. If the Lord wills, we'll do this. We want to accomplish something. We want to live purposefully. But it's not ultimately and finally up to us. Our brilliance, our ingenuity, our strength, our power, our resources, it isn't. It isn't. Don't be deluded in that. Number two, daily acknowledge your total and utter dependency on the Lord. Now, I don't know how you do this for your life and your salvation, but daily you ought to do that. I kneel by a chair and pray. Kneeling reminds me, the posture of kneeling reminds me, I'm not much. He's everything. The Lord knelt and prayed. There in Gethsemane, there at the stone. We ought to do that. It ought to be in our hearts and our attitudes, daily, acknowledging, Lord, it's all about you. It's not about me. I want to be a blessing. I want to serve. It's all about you. I'm small. You've given me gifts and abilities and opportunities, given me the breath of life, but it's really about you, and I'm dependent upon you. Give us this day our daily bread. I mean, there, that's the smallest thing that sustains life when Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And it involves in all larger things. We're dependent on him. Give us today. We're dependent upon him. For life and for salvation, we're totally dependent. It's not because you're good. You're not. Neither am I. It's all because of Christ and his death. Number three, if the Lord wills, should form your thinking. And at times, it ought to break into your words. It ought to be so foundational in your day-to-day thought as you think about if the Lord wills and allows you to continue, that it even breaks forth into your speech. It happens, right? Hey, I hear the Steelers are, are playing today, right? Did they make it? Hans, did, are they? You didn't wear your jacket today. You're not ashamed. Not ashamed. Okay. Mark, you have one. But I saw, I saw a Steeler uniform run here somewhere. So, what? Who? Yeah, Kayla, yeah, yeah. And some of you are Eagle fans, right? Any Eagle fans and proud of it? They're in the back. They're way in the back. Okay. Yeah, no one up front. Okay. And a lot of times you get thinking about uh, the Steelers, if you're a Steeler fan, 
or an eagle if you're an eagle fan, right? And a lot of times, and will it not even break into your conversation sometimes during the day? Ghost stealers? I got emails from Florida, ghost stealers. Dealing church business ends ghost stealers. I'm like, I'm not a stealer fan. That sounds like an ungodly title of a team to me. <laughs> There's no amen there. Isn't it funny how, you know, we'd be thinking about our teams and at times it even breaks through, right? Into the, good night, honey, go Steelers, give her, you know, like, that doesn't fit in the context, you know? Well, the same thing's true with this, right? The Lord, if the Lord's willing, ought to be so bedrock in all of our thinking, that life is so tentative and brief and uncertain and certainly unpredictable, that the Lord willing ought to, break into our words, not in ritualism, not chanting, please don't do that, but it ought to be so much a part of the way we think that it breaks into our words. It should. I'd love to hear that more among God's people. And number four and last, if you're here and you're not saved, you've never put your your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, God has a message for you. I love you. John 3.16, God so loved the world. He provided a Savior. Christ is the only way into heaven. If you are not saved, you will not enter heaven. You must be born again. And if you're here and not saved down here, you're planning for your death. You're planning for your death uh, without a Savior. You need Christ. You need to be saved. And it's true for those around us that you and I circulate. And in this our Jerusalem, there are people around us that do not know Christ. They need to know him. They're planning to die without a Savior. And they must be saved. Well, do your planning, but don't leave God out. Whatever you do, let's do that in 2009, shall we?